The year this week's album was released, President Johnson requested the Federal Reserve revoke the convertibility of the U.S. dollar to gold, one of the penultimate steps leading to gold's final severance from the U.S. dollar by President Nixon in 1971. Another little remembered event, the Thule Air Force Base B-52 crash, which occurred after a fire broke out in the cabin of a B-52 stratofortress, bursting into flames due to seat cushions being placed on top of heater vents. The part that caught the world's attention? The high explosive components of four B-28FI nuclear bombs detonating, which spread radiation and toxic fallout over remote parts of Greenland, and has continued to be a major controversy for local residents and led to several anti-contamination projects. In popular news, the Northern Vietnamese Army launched the Tet Offensive, which shocked the American public into the realization that we could actually lose a war. A lot more dark events also occurred here on the home front, which ultimately led to President Johnson signing the Civil Rights Act. Odds are you can guess what those events were from your history classes. The year, of course, was 1968. The band we're talking about today is a much more grown-up version of the Beatles. And the album? Their eponymous album, also known as The White Album. Today, on Two Dudes and Tunes. Welcome to Two Dudes and Tunes, the show where two dudes get together and talk about the tunes that shaped their personal experiences. My name is Wood. I, of course, am one of the dudes, and I'm joined by my long-suffering good pal and all-around good dude, Chris. Chris, in doing the research for our opening segment, I learned something really cool for the uh, classic sci-fi fan out there. On April 2nd, 1968, 2001, A Space Odyssey premiered. And the following day, April 3rd, 1968, Planet of the Apes appeared. How about that? So I actually have a funny story about Planet of the Apes. Um, I don't have a funny story about 2001, A Space Odyssey. And I don't think anyone does because that's not the kind of movie anybody has like a fun story about. But everybody so, knows the music I, too. Yeah. I, I watched it in film class and it was super interesting. Uh, or I fell asleep, depending on the kind of person you are. But uh, as far as Planet of the Apes goes, uh, so the first time that my dad was deployed to Iraq, um, we had been living in Germany at the time, and dad went off to Iraq. And we actually moved back to the States uh, because my mom had friends there and wanted you know, some support while dad was in Iraq. Uh, so we, uh, we moved into this parsonage. Uh, that was up for rent and um, had a pretty spare living room because, you know, all our stuff was in Germany. Uh, and I remember one, it was like a Saturday, I think. Uh, the Sci-Fi Channel was running a, uh, a Planet of the Apes marathon and having nothing better to do. We just sat and watched every Planet of the Apes movie. I think even up through the Tim Burton one, which had come out uh, at least a couple of years ago mm -hmm. uh, at that point. And um, almost none of them are good. Like the first one is good. And then the rest of them, like there's one where they, uh, they, the, the apes have this religion where they pray to a nuclear bomb 
into chapel. Have you seen those movies? Yes, I have. You know, yeah. And so that's always a fond memory for me is whenever I see anything Planet of the Apes. I remember uh, me and my brother and sister and my mom watching these absurd movies and um, having a good laugh at like rubber monkey masks and and <laughs> really you know, bad prosthetics, all that. Yeah, just super silly. Uh, but yeah, that's that is a fantastic bit of trivia. It really it it kind of it, it's funny to me that Planet of the Apes had to premiere after such a groundbreaking science fiction film like 2001 a space odyssey like it's i i am wondering who went and saw both films one after the other can you imagine the production of those two films they would have been produced concurrently so people in the industry would have been comparing and contrasting them throughout the entire production oh, phase <laughs> and you know that there had to be in groups and out groups like there had to be a lot uh, of trash talking that's it's got to be one of those things like you show up to class with your science fair project, feeling really proud of your paper mache volcano um, that can barely spit up the like baking soda and whatever else you put into it. And then you look over at the next table and the kid has like a centrifuge with like blood and plasma being separated <laughs> and like some sort of experiment on pathogens or something. That's, I, I just imagine that that is kind of the feeling like oh boy you're real outclassed here <laughs> yeah probably so uh let me ask you this do you remember if the mark Wahlberg planet of the apes movie was out at that point in time when you watched it that would have well, been 2001 i believe yeah i think it had already been out and it was just it just crossed the threshold of like okay we can play it on tv because I think we watched it, and that was the one that oh, my mom that was like, Tim oh, this one. is like, yeah, that yeah, is the yeah Tim what, okay. But, but I, I remember pretty clearly, uh, I, I, I remember mom not liking it because it's, you know, it's Tim Burton, so it's needlessly dark. Mm -hmm. And it's also, I remember it being pretty dumb. Oh, yeah, um, no, it's the worst one. That's why I brought it up. I could only yeah. remember, I could only remember, uh, uh, what's his face being in it and uh yeah mark Wahlberg. there we go well and then they they brought it back and a lot of people have positive things to say about the new trilogy i haven't seen any of those it's really good uh, it really but it's is. got the actor who plays Gollum in it mm -hmm. so that's got to be good at least i know his part is good james franco is in it which it kind of cracks me up when he's in anything because I always remember him from pineapple express <laughs> <laughs> which is like at his most like deadbeat stoner role ever so but enough uh enough sci-fi nerd shenanigans how are things down there in hill country for you uh, it's been pretty good um tiffany and i had our first real like date night in a long time where we didn't have a kid and were able to like go do something and so uh we went and saw uh, alton brown uh, here in San Antonio at the uh, the Tobin Center. And that's just always a good time. Um, she kind of turned me on to him back when we were dating. And he's like, if you cross Monty Python and Bill Nye the Science Guy with Julia Child. He's, oh, man. he's a cooking show that teaches you a lot about science. And he's like incredibly funny on top of all that. Sign me up. That sounds so, fantastic. So he had a show on like Food Network for... 12 or 13 years called good eats where he taught you how to cook and all that. 
And then after that show ended, he did a show called Cutthroat Kitchen, and there were a ton of memes about, you know, uh, either your hero dies young or lives long enough to become the villain, because he was the bad (laughs) guy on Cutthroat Kitchen. Yeah, of Uh, course. And now he's back to doing Good Eats again, which is awesome. But his, his traveling shows, he does these big theater productions, and they've got the tour buses and the semi truck and they roll into these places and he does this elaborate cooking demonstration. One year he did, uh, he always wanted an easy bake oven as a kid. And now that he's an adult, he wants the mega bake oven. And he took like, uh, yes, he took like 54 par lights, which for anybody who's familiar with theater stuff, par lights are extremely hot. Uh, the surface of the lights get up to three and 400 degrees. So he put 54 of these into like a big rack and put a conveyor belt under them. And he was able to bake a pizza in like 90 seconds running underneath these lights. (laughs) Um, That's amazing. I love it. This most recent tour he did, um, or a couple tours ago, he did this thing where he used liquid nitrogen and fire extinguishers to make instant ice cream by shooting them out of a rocket. Um, Oh man. Like, and those things are all like on YouTube and his current show uh, he does something totally different that he begs the audience not to tell anything about while he's doing it. But needless to say, it's equally impressive and well awesome. worth But he breaks up the show by he also has always been kind of a musician. He writes the music for his show. He does whatever. And so he has a bunch of just parody kind of music that is just a lot of fun. And so we went and saw that and had a great time. And then... A couple days later, I had to get in my company car and drive 948 miles to St. Louis and uh, listened to a lot of albums on the way because yeah. um, it's a very boring drive through a bunch of nothing. At uh, the very least, that's 14 albums oh, yeah. through a, a fair chunk of discographies. Oh, yeah. So it was great, though. Um, got out there, was able to work with a couple of people who were new to my team and live in St. Louis. And then uh, flew home yesterday so I could be here with you. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> What's new with you, man? Track somehow. Well, uh, not much is new with me. Megan and I are kind of excited. We're going to go see one of our favorite bands uh, this weekend. We're actually going to be down in your neck of the woods. We're going to be in Austin uh, cool. Saturday and Sunday. Well, we'll go home Sunday. Yeah. Uh, but this band, I won't spoil who it is because they're on our list, but they are doing a very Beatlesy thing themselves and uh, quitting touring after this tour. Uh, it's kind of up in Quitters. the air what they're going to do. I, I don't think they're disbanding, um, but they are uh, going to focus on studio projects now, I think. Uh so we're really excited to get to go see them perform their swan song tour. Um, and it's also chestnut praline latte season. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. I am a basic white girl. I love <laughs> whenever the chestnut praline latte uh, comes to Starbucks. And in fact, since it's come to Starbucks, I don't think Megan and I have gotten any other kinds of drinks. <laughs> We've just gotten those because they're only around for November and December and mm-hmm. then they're gone. Uh, so um, I'm anticipating on Friday mornings, we always get up and go get coffee and breakfast together before we go to work. 
And so both of us are super excited. Nice. That, uh, it's that, that time of year. But that's really it, man. Not much more to, uh, to not many more beans to spill okay. this week. Well, let's get into the album then. Absolutely. Let's dive in. All right, Chris. The Beatles, also known as the White Album, uh, released November 22nd, 1968. Uh, as most people are familiar, this album was recorded, I think, between May and October of 1968, with several of the songs not even being written until the early part of October. Like they were really pumping music out uh, in preparation for this album. Uh, for me, I think my first experience with it as an album probably came in early high school. Uh, I was not a huge Beatles fanatic. I did not have the whole Beatlemania thing, probably mainly because I was a child of the 80s and I was interested in other music. I was familiar with the Beatles, uh, and my first real like introduction to the Beatles would have been sometime around the release of their Beatles 1 album that then got me to dive a little bit more into their discography. Um, what was your first experience with this album? So my, my first experience with it is actually from the same, like sort of root source. Um, my freshman year of high school, I had been playing trumpet since mm, like fourth grade. Band nerd. Was, uh, yeah. Oh yes. The proudly I am a band nerd. Uh, but I was, I was wanting to play something else. And this actually was around the time that dad had been deployed to Iraq the first time. So we're in Youngstown, Ohio, um, which for those of you who aren't from there has quite a, quite a colorful reputation as sort of a crooked town full of gangsters. And actually I learned later uh, from my dad that uh, he had found out after we left that the music store that I took private lessons at uh, was a front for the mob and was like a, a way they laundered money. Uh, so thank the Youngstown, Ohio mob, any of you who have heard me play guitar and enjoyed it. If Chris but ever anyway, tells me he's going to make me an offer, I can't refuse. I know he was turned. <laughs> I'm going to have to check you for a wire next time we uh, are in the same room. Together. There are a lot of wires going on with this podcast. I'm not going to lie. Just not that. It, well, yeah. And I'm not smart enough to know which one like outs you as an FBI informant. So I'll just leave it lie. Uh, but I was taking guitar lessons uh, from this guy. I can't remember his name, unfortunately. Real sweet dude. He was probably like just some dude in his twenties trying to make ends meet. Uh, but I I came into playing guitar with a very limited musical experience uh, because I hadn't heard a ton of secular music. And so when I came to him and he asked me, what do you want to learn to play? I was like, well, uh, I like Christian ska music. And he was like kind of gobsmacked that I hadn't heard. He ran through several. I remember him like, well, so have you heard of Led Zeppelin? And I was like, oh, what? And so he taught Sounds me the riff heavy. to, um, yeah, taught me the riff to Heartbreaker. And at the end of the lesson uh, was kind of like, okay, well, look, here are some things that you should check out. And the Beatles was one of them. And so mom took me to Walmart and we were just perusing the CD section. 
and I didn't really know what to get. He had kind of told, given me a few ideas. Mm -hmm. And one of the albums that I wound up with was the one album uh, by the Beatles. And so that was kind of my first introduction to the Beatles. Um, And I don't think I really got around to listening to full albums until kind of my college years. Um, There was a, a girl that I dated who burned a couple of Beatles albums for me. But then when I met Megan, she had every single Beatles album Mm -hmm. on her laptop and not just their regular studio albums, but she had all the stuff from when they were the quarry men, a ton of outtakes, this huge compilation of like, track after track of studio outtakes and demos and things the live albums yeah just everything absolutely everything and unfortunately that album has has bit the dust uh it has ceased to be it is no more <laughs> it is an ex laptop uh so we don't have all that at our fingertips anymore uh but that was my introduction to their discography was meeting Megan and she like burned a bunch of them for me. And uh, I just kind of dove head first during college. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of where my understanding of the Beatles took off. You know, it's funny. It's only been, I guess three or four weeks ago that we did the um, three dog night album. And I really mm-hmm. talked a lot about a band that exists in a moment of time and just kind of ceased to exist after, you know, seven or eight years. And I'd forgotten just how narrow the discography is for the Beatles. Oh um, yeah. I mean, they released all of their albums in a span of seven years. Uh, it's, it's crazy. It's kind of frustrating to look at that and go like, what have I done in 10 years? Oh yeah. It's exactly. taken me 15 to <laughs> do what little pathetic amount of work I've done. And they cranked out like, world literal world changing music over the course of seven or eight years it's incredible well in 13 albums in seven or eight years like yeah the amount of output not just the fact that it was world changing and when you look at some of the tracks on this week's album it's amazing uh you're kind of scrolling through it on spotify and like the least listened to track on this album has more than 14 million listens. Mm -hmm. Uh, The most listened to track is actually Blackbird with 253 million listens. That, you know, that doesn't (laughs) surprise me at all. And actually, speaking of Blackbird, I I was talking with Megan about how many memories of the Beatles I have versus other bands' music. the Beatles were a band that I downloaded some of their tracks from live LimeWire when that was Ooh, a thing. Naughty, naughty. I know, I know. The pirate over here, rawr. Uh, but uh, Blackbird was one that I had heard and like read about in guitar magazines. And it was this like mythical acoustic track that I, I didn't have the money to buy the album. And so I downloaded the song and it was on some mixed CD with a bunch of other random, random music. Uh, but I remember sitting and learning to play that song and um, just being blown away at like the chord progression and the words and just how everything fits together. It's an amazing song. 
but yeah, that's like, it, it does. So it doesn't surprise me is what I'm saying that that is the most downloaded song. Cause even before, uh, Spotify and iTunes, people like me were like, Ooh, nice. underscore Blackbird. Oh no, my computer has a virus. What's going on? <laughs> it's awful. Let's play. Let's worth it. Let's let's do something a little different uh, that I just thought of. Let's play Spotify. Uh, pin the tail on the donkey here. What would you think is the second most listened to track on this album? Good question. Just, and don't Maybe. look. Just just make names up. <laughs> oh no, I'm not. I'm not gonna look. I'm just gonna look at the track list so I can guess. Oh man. I don't even know. There's so first many off, good ones. First off, there's way too many tracks on this album. While you're yeah, looking, you know, know. Uh, we can talk about that. There's um, uh, yeah. literally uh, 28 tracks, 27 tracks, 30. Is this, was 30. this a, a double disc or four discs? This was like four discs. Was this was four Man. discs. That had to have just blown people's mind to go like, <laughs> I've got to flip four records once each this is way too much work um but going back to your original question i'm gonna guess man but, i don't know like but, but let me do say, maybe let me let me say this too though before you get on your guess most of these tracks are really short i mean yeah they're, they're not they're there's not a lot of sub long. even minute and a half tracks here and so yeah, yeah there's a lot of songs but it's the same disc count as Stadium Arcadium, which is another album we did from vinyl. Yeah. That's four discs as well. Um, yeah, that's Ob- true. Oblada Oblada is um, the third most listened to track at 145 million. It's not the Shoot. second most. I'll give uh, you one more try. Another, uh, okay. Uh, While My Guitar Gently Weeps. There you go. That's it. Yes. Okay, good. <laughs> um, which is a music nerd's paradise that song has oh, got man. so much so going good. on have you seen uh the there was like a tv event that was a commemoration for george harrison's life mm-hmm. and they had everybody and their mom up on stage it was ringo Starr and tom petty and bob dylan's son jacob i think and just a thousand people on stage uh playing this song as a tribute Mm-hmm. And they give the guitar solo to Prince and he just destroys it. It's so good. Look that video up. I need to send it to you. Um, that sounds awesome. But listeners, I'll, I'll try and post it on the Facebook or something. But anyway. We'll add it to the uh, show notes. Come on. This is a podcast. Yeah. Do it. Do it. Add it to the show notes. I'll, I'll find it and uh, send it to you before too long because it is incredible. That's awesome. Well, I think we should talk a little bit about the album as a whole. So I've already alluded to there's too many tracks at 30. Um, I felt like this album, everybody kind of knows that the Beatles stopped touring to focus on their studio craft. And this album comes out of a period where they had just come down off the mountain from, you know, a year in India and had kind of learned more about who they wanted to be as men and as a band. And they brought a lot of new and experimental thoughts to how they produce their music. And it's kind of funny. Um, you and I have talked in past episodes that one of my favorite, like just stupid movies 
is Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story. Uh-huh. And I'm this so glad album, bringing this up. This album is what inspired them to do the whole latter years of Dewey Cox after his, you know, awakening and wanting 10,000 didgeridoos and all of that. Um, <laughs> this, this is the album that serves as the basis for that to him, because in a way, while there is a ton of great stuff on this album, there's a ton of stuff that's just questionable at best as far as being worth being on an album. But I think that goes to show how vulnerable they were willing to be with the different directions that they were kind of going. Uh, I remarked to you in text uh, earlier this week that I felt like this is four different albums and each one of those albums kind of represents John Lennon, Paul McCartney, George Harrison, and Ringo Starr. You know, you can feel the four different voices and what's different about this album from any of their other albums that I feel when I listen to it is for the first time in their career, each one of their voices is being an independent voice in the music itself. One of the things that makes the Beatles such an amazing band with so much staying power is they kind of invented the idea of four people being one person. The, the Beatles have this one voice sound where all four of them are singing and you get the Beatles sound. And that kind of fed into their music in their early albums. All four of them are playing, but you get this one sound. This album feels like four independent men who are doing kind of their own thing and we're still working together. And as I'm sure we'll talk here a little in a little bit, a lot of friction developed between the guys during this period of time and really kind of led ultimately to their downfall as a group uh, for better or for worse. Uh, kind of what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's one of the things that makes this, uh, album sort of a I don't want to call it a mixed bag but I think what I mean to say is that the individuality of each song uh like that aspect of this album is kind of a double-edged sword Mm -hmm. because on one hand you can really listen to each song and take a pretty informed guess as to who wrote it Mm -hmm. you know who wrote the song whose sensibilities kind of pervade the whole thing But also that means that some of the aspects of each individual aren't tempered by the others. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think for me, uh, the, the phenomenon I I felt occurring was there would be sections of this album where uh, like Paul, for instance, was kind of the easiest example of this, where I would be listening to a tune and I would think like, Oh man, this is really great. But, it kind of skews in the direction of Paul's kind of poppy sensibilities. You know, yeah, exactly. Like you can hear shades of wings, which can be good, but (laughs) can also be so like schmaltzy and goofy. Let's be honest. Um, If it's the Beatles impersonating wings, it's sad. Yeah, well, exactly. Um, And you know, I, I think maybe it's a little bit worse for somebody like Ringo who doesn't get, I think he only has like two songs on this whole album. Don't pass me by, which is really good. Mm-hmm. And good night, which is, is okay. 
like for me personally, it's the orchestration of it is really good, but it's just kind of too much of that. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I just kind of felt that way about this album that I wanted, I wanted to hear more coherence and maybe that's just me as a fan. Uh, the Beatles albums that I have gravitated to have always been sort of the, um, uh, well, the, the two, the two albums that kind of ushered them into this kind of more diverse period of their career uh, rubber soul and revolver you know those are two albums where each song is different but i think they all had much more of a, a a heavier hand in how the whole song would come together um and a kind of a, a good example of the friction that they were experiencing the tune back in the ussr it, the drum track in that song is a composite from the three Beatles that weren't the drummer. Mm -hmm. I think everybody had kind of nitpicked Ringo to death and he got fed up and said, okay, I'm going home. You guys sort it out. And he didn't so just go home. He quit for two weeks and didn't take their phone calls. Yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, uh, the, this whole album is kind of marked by that stripe and it's kind of a miracle to me that this album even exists when you hear about um, like it, everybody kind of likes to blame Yoko Ono for the band breaking up, but it was the friction was in these individuals long before, you know, John and Yoko became a thing. And I was reading on the Wikipedia article actually that all of their wives were in the studio, which was unheard of up till that point in their career. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that friction, I don't know. I, I think they succeeded despite themselves. Yeah, with this album, and I I agree with you very much that the the kind of individual voices taking the reins for each song is a double edged sword. It's good, but it also kind of makes you wish for a little bit more coherence. At least I kind of felt that way. Yeah, and this you know we've talked in the past about George Martin being you know, the fifth Beatle or whatever. This is also the album where he kind of took a break from the Beatles as well. And so I think that kind of lends itself to the independent nature of the four voices we're hearing here. You didn't have him kind of shepherding them along. Um, I believe he started production with this album and he decided to, as the British would say, take a holiday. And he mm -hmm. left, mm -hmm. um, I believe the other producer on the album is um, uh, Chris Thomas who went on to yep. produce a bunch of other stuff, but for a while there, you know, there was just no, no guiding uniform hand there that Martin had provided for a long time before. Yeah. And I think one of the things you hear commonly when you listen to all of them talk about their experience, or at least if you listen to uh, John talk about it is that Paul kind of, you got two, two viewpoints. Paul would say, I was trying to get the record made and make music. John would say probably Paul took the reins and wouldn't let go. Um, and I, I think all four of them were being kind of insufferable. Uh, one of the other people who kind of abandoned ship at this point was uh, Jeff Emmerich. Mm -hmm. Their uh, engineer through, I think the previous like three or four albums. I don't remember mm -hmm. exactly. Um, 
That's a double-edged sword, though, because Jeff Emmerich was the reason that they had not upgraded to eight-track recording, which was common practice at this point. They had stuck with four-track recording up to his departure because he didn't Uh believe the technology was solid enough for them to produce a good album with. Which is interesting because this album is the first album that they used eight track recording on. So yeah, it's, it's incredible that they, which which they needed them all of them. Yeah. Yeah. They, well, and you hear about them, what do they call it? Bouncing down, recording a bunch of stuff. You're filling up a four track, squishing that down into one track and stuffing it into the next, like recording three more tracks. Exactly. Um, but you know, it's, it's something that I, I, probably a common narrative in a lot of rock bands is bands have mentors that usher them into success and they get a little too big for their britches and decide like, you know, we're going to make all the decisions. And I think with the Beatles, uh, they are all of them talented enough to carry an album Mm -hmm. or two. But they don't last much longer past this point, do they? I mean, nope. they have, I think, Yellow Submarine came out after this, and then... Abbey Road, um, and then Let yeah, It Be. and then Abbey Road. And Let It, Let it Be is, uh, is a whole nother can of worms that we don't have time to open up here, but... I do want to open up a can of worms about Let It Be, though, and this is the perfect it. time to talk about it. Have you seen the trailer yeah. for the new Disney documentary? About oh, Let man, It Be. I'm so excited about that. That comes out on November 25th for anybody listening to this at release, and you Ooh. have to see it. Oh, I've man. seen the extended previews, and it just looks so good. I don't understand. I mean, I guess it's because he's such a, a prominent filmmaker, but I don't understand how Peter Jackson gets his fingers on all of this great footage. Like he did it with uh, They Shall Not Grow Old, mm-hmm. where he has access to all these. The, canisters of film that nobody else has seen and you know he's got the millions and millions of dollars of hollywood tech behind him but still the man is a cinematic genius he will be remembered for a hundred years after he dies for the contributions he's made to the cinema sphere he's a treasure and i would I will fight on every hill for him. Um, I believe (laughs) the world of Peter Jackson. And so I feel like a lot of people feel that way about him. And so if Uh you're, you know, the children of the Beatles or you're the people who are trying to carry a legacy forward and you feel the same way, you'd be like, here, have all this footage that was secretly recorded for a documentary that never got released. Have Uh with it and make with it what you will. Yeah. It's so exciting. I'm, I'm, I'm the trailer's I'm excited a to, yeah, I'm excited to just get a lot of footage of them in the studio recording this because they, um, you know, there, there was so much, I mean, some of, some of the work for, uh, for let it be happened during this session. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, I don't know, it's, like as a musician, it's just a dream to get to see people working in the studio, and yeah. especially if it's the Beatles. Yeah. Um, especially because they did it; they were successful. So, what yeah, what was the yeah. what was that like? Even if they weren't exactly getting along at that point. 
Getting back it's, to the album for a second, unless you got something more yeah. to say there. No, 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 no. Go ahead, well, go ahead. I was just gonna say, have you ever listened to this album pressed on vinyl? No, I have not. There's something really unique about this album that was record changing, or you know, changed the industry. This is the first album pressed that I've ever heard of, and they've it's been talked about a couple of times in other articles that I've read that did not have three second gaps between each one of the tracks. That's a very Mm. standard thing with vinyl pressings. And because of how much music there was to put on all, you know, four of the discs, they had to cut all those three second gaps out. So you couldn't just pick up the needle and drop it on the next track. Like was customary. This was the first commercially produced mega successful album that all the tracks ran together uh, and either crossfaded or, you know, uh, just abruptly cut to the next one. It's kind of an interesting experience, even still on vinyl because of that. Uh, and that's how we got that as a common industry practice. I need to uh, pick up the vinyl. That well, some, first of all, some I really record need producer to, like, accountant was like, "There will not be a fifth disc in this pressing. <laughs> <laughs> we cannot afford to drain the world of that much plastic in order to make these records." Vinyl, I'm sorry, we sir, just can't. Vinyl. Yeah, yeah. Um, but man, that it, something as simple as that. It's interesting that that had to be, have a beginning. Somebody had to say you know, let's just put all these tracks together. Uh, because when you think about somebody like Pink Floyd, where every single one mm-hmm. of their albums mm-hmm. almost does it's that. It's a continuation. It's an hour of music. Yeah. And and there, uh, I mean, you can look at any number. Uh, one of the albums on this list, um, Songs for the Deaf by Queens of the Stone Age, that's an album that's a concept album where everything flows together and it's tied together by these like radio Mm-hmm. Still like fake radio segments. Um, but you know, that it's incredible to think how many different arenas that, uh, the Beatles broke ground in. One of the things that I noticed about this album that I had forgotten is just how many rockers there are mm-hmm. on it. Like, uh, sometimes I think with the Beatles, at least for me personally, I tend to think of them in terms of, George Martin's piano playing or the string arrangements or the brass bands, you know, all the stuff that kind of makes them seem like a little bit more of a Baroque pop group. Uh, But no, they have some razors on here. Um, The one that I just love is uh, Helter Skelter. Mm Mm-hmm which kind of has like a checkered reputation now because of Charles Manson. But I I was reading about that song that Paul had heard a tune by the who Mm -hmm. and thought like, Oh, well, I can't make music like that. They've already done it. And then he wouldn't listen to whichever album it was that he had heard. And they didn't do that the whole album. It was like kind of a wider ranged album. And so Paul and I think the rest of the Beatles felt a little bit freer to write something heavy. And it really sounds legitimately ahead of its time when you think of things that are being released in 68, maybe not necessarily ahead of like kind of the down and dirty blues of like the Rolling Stones or the who, you know, because mm-hmm. the who were getting really loud. Hendrix was getting really loud, but it just sounds some of the stuff on this album, especially the heavier tunes 
sounds so contemporary to me in a weird way, even if the production values and the guitar tones and everything aren't necessarily what we hear today. There are so many bands that take cues from this album. Uh, so one of the bands that I think of actually a lot in terms of like who got the most from which band, uh, the band Franz Ferdinand, which probably a lot of people think of them as one hit wonders and kind of rightly so. They had Take Me Out and not much else. But when you listen to the rest of their music, uh, a lot of it really does sound like uh, Birthday back in the USSR, mm-hmm. uh, Helter Skelter. You know, this it really does feel sometimes like the Beatles just wrote the book on yeah. everything. And this album's specifically with the the harder tunes makes me kind of feel that way. I'm sorry. I keep going back to like technical things, but your comment about they wrote the book, except for in the areas where they didn't write the book, which is kind of funny to me too. Like, yeah, yeah. I feel like the Beatles by and large were kind of troglodytes when it comes to like technology. <laughs> um, they're great musicians. They're great concepts, uh, artists and all of that. But one of the things I meant to mention a little bit earlier was this album is mixed separately in stereo and mono. So they recorded mm-hmm. these tracks and they mastered and mixed them independently of each other for stereo and mono. And most bands at the time had adopted stereo only recording and mastering and mixing. And this album was the first Beatles album only ad- released in stereo in the United States. Uh, Yellow Submarine was the last one released in mono or stereo in the UK. But all of that to say, those differences, those albums ended up being very different. I think if you look at the Wikipedia article, the stereo version's a full three minutes longer than the mono version because they cut out things like Ringo Starr's scream at the end of one of the songs and there's a different fade in on different things. And it's just kind of crazy that they were still holding on to the, the mono stereo kind of spectrum when everybody else was moving on. And the only reason they even adopted stereo as another opportunity was because fans were writing in saying that they'd bought all this new stereo equipment and they were buying both versions of their albums, you know, the stereo and the mono version. Uh, so, so that was the only reason they even adopted it to start with, despite the fact the industry had moved on from them. That's too funny. <laughs> well, and you know, that's, I think one of the things that makes their music so interesting is because you do have this sort of meeting of old versus new, uh, because especially on this album, you have these like music hall, Mm-hmm. tunes that Paul McCartney is writing. Uh, but then you have these sort of darker, angrier tunes that John is writing and some of the moody sort of ballads that George writes. But all of it is this this music that is groundbreaking and different, but through the lens of this older technology And I think that's one of the things that makes their music so exciting to me, whereas a a lot of music from this time I don't necessarily resonate with because the musical ideas might be executed on a really 
high level, uh, the ideas themselves aren't that exciting. I think what the Beatles do is write exciting music and they just happen to have technological limitations. Mm -hmm. Does that, does that kind of make sense? Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. And I think that also is another good example, you know, that the technology, the, the limitations are further compounded by some of the issues the band was having mm-hmm. um, at that time. Um, I was kind of struck when I was doing the research for this of just, spoiler alert, one of my favorite tracks on this album is Obladi Oblada. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just a great, track it's fun it's fast it's got this great feeling but that's one of the tracks that they fought the most over as a group mm-hmm. and part of it was because of technological limitations um they would record a backing set and as you'd mentioned earlier they'd bounce it down to a track and then they'd try to record the next set to go on top of that backing set and they'd get in a fight over if that backing set was good enough um yeah. it was on this track while they were recording it that Ringo quit um, because he'd re-recorded the backing like a hundred times. They'd yeah, record yeah. it, move on, and then do it again. And so he quit. One of my favorite takeaways was um, Richard Lush was the recording engineer on this uh, particular track and had been living through all this. And as you said earlier, you know, McCartney had written it and had been playing the piano for it and had been kind of leading the song. And Lennon came into the studio late one night, sat down at the pan- piano and said, I'm going to record this song and it'll be the way it has to be. And uh, so Richard Lush said, I quote, Lennon went straight to the piano and smashed the keys with an almighty amount of volume, twice the speed of how we'd been doing it up to this point and said, that's it. Come on. And that's the version we end up with, actually. That song really? would have sucked if it That's was at half too speed. too funny. Oh, yeah, it would have been <laughs> terrible. It's, you know, it, it's tough because on the one hand, I want to say, like, okay, guys, we don't need a thousand takes. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that I think makes people go, you know, 10, 15, 20, 100 takes is because if you're good enough, you're going to work at it and work at it and work at it and discover something really good. Mm -hmm. But most of us don't have the time to devote to, you know, a thousand iterations of any given song. It's what makes listening to different demos and takes of Beatles tunes so interesting is because they really throw everything at the wall and pick out the stuff that sticks. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, and I think it's just in, it's incredible. And actually when I was listening to, um, when I was listening to this album on my phone, you know, I iTunes or Apple music or whatever will have at the bottom of whatever you're listening to alternate versions of the album. Mm -hmm. And there was a release of this that came out in 2018 or something that has, I, I, you know, opened that album just to see. And, there are 90 some odd tracks. Let me open it up here to make sure I'm not lying. Um, oh, it doesn't have it on here. Uh, but you can just scroll and scroll and scroll and scroll. Oh, okay. Here it is right at the bottom. Uh, this specific version of this album. 
107 songs, five hours, 27 minutes, because <laughs> they included uh, the Escher demo and take four, take 18, take 10 with a guitar part, uh, take 22, take three. It's just tons and tons of iterations to get to where we're at with this. And, uh, I, I mean, it's a superb album. It's definitely got its problems, but you know, part of me wants to say like, Oh, it's worth it that they went through all that time and heartache and made, uh, an engineer and their drummer quit eventually because it just wound up being more trouble than it was worth. One of, uh, your, uh one of the images that I laughed about a lot when I was reading, uh, for this album, uh, was, uh, your favorite track, uh, piggies. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Ugh. That was written by uh, George Harrison. Uh, thank you, sir. Uh, and or George, John he gets picked on so much. Oh yeah, exactly. Well, because of this song, he deserves it. Um, <laughs> but one of the images, the mental images that I thought was amazing, is John Lennon took a field recorder out to some farm and recorded the pigs grunting himself by himself. Oh, man. Like he said, That's the track was missing something, and he just went out into you know some muddy field and just recorded pigs. For an afternoon, oh. <laughs> John Lennon, like, <laughs> oh man, I the image of John Lennon like stooped over, following exactly. a pig around with a tape recorder is go brilliant. pig, make noise, pig, pig, make noise. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, you can imagine him doing something like that. Yeah, I man, I feel I feel for George. He he's he is so underappreciated. Uh, this song is terrible. But, you know, you look at his solo career after mm-hmm. the Beatles, oh, he and he just turns into this amazing musician oh, yeah. that, you know, people who were paying attention went like, oh, we knew this. But, like, his his contributions are some of my favorite on this album. Mm-hmm. Uh, While My Guitar Gently Weeps is, like, every guitar player's dream. Yeah. It's just so good. The chord progression is fantastic. And it, it's funny. I feel like the Beatles always... If you look at, if you just look on paper at it, George is always kind of disrespected a little bit. Cause like mm-hmm. Eric Clapton was the one who played lead on while my guitar gently weeps, mm-hmm. but George wrote the song and sang it. Um, you know, I, I'm trying to remember what some of his tunes were, but you know, the, here's one the of the things. Here's the problem with George Harrison and why I think he gets made fun of more than the rest of the Beatles is he was busy being too much of an activist, I feel like, in his music. You know, Paul and John, uh, and to an extent Ringo, are kind of just letting things fly and having kind of a good time. And if they happen to have some sort of political messaging or activist message, it doesn't come off as forced. George Harrison's activism music just comes across as forced. And Piggy's, you know, he has stated a bunch of times that, you know, it was supposed to be, you know, uh, just a, a credo against materialism and like, yeah. you know, consumerism and all of that. And it definitely is, but it's like, no, uh, no total pun intended. It's very ham fisted. <laughs> it, it really is. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I think it, it's easy to look at how invested he was in his, 
spiritual development and kind of maybe say that his philosophy and his political ideas might have distracted him. But I think also, I mean, when you read biographies and stuff about him, McCarley and, and Lennon kind of pick on him a little bit. And I think <laughs> I think they, for all their genius as songwriters, I think they kind of had, they had like sixth gear right in front of them <laughs> and didn't know how to use it, you know. And so then when he goes off and um, records this Two Shall Pass, and it's this epic double album full mm-hmm. of like fantastic songs and textures. Um, it's just one of those things. And, and that maybe isn't, doesn't even have that much to do with the White Album in general, except for it's one of the things that makes this band so fascinating is the people and the personalities. Ringo being one of those people who, uh, you know, he was like George Harrison, kind of a, a secret ingredient. His drumming is fantastic. Um, he's a groovy timekeeper. And one of the things that you read about him is that he, um, one of the reasons they wanted him in the band in the first place is because they wouldn't have to splice tape as much and try and match up his, you know, he was just such a good timekeeper. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't know. I, and I think him and him and George, really get short shrift on this album, which is kind of a shame. Uh, but, it, you know, like I say, it's just one of these things that makes this album so interesting. It's like breaking down who had what problems with who and how that affected the music overall. Yeah, and to kind of continue on the Ringo thing, you know, we've talked about in prior episodes about how people asked, uh, you know, is Ringo the greatest drummer in the world? And I think it was John who said Ringo isn't even the best drummer in the band, but yeah, he's which consistent. Is super, yeah, super mean. That is, I, it's, <laughs> it's not only mean, it's inaccurate yeah. and shows how little John Lennon knew yeah. about what was going on musically with his band. But I'll tell you what, one of my favorite albums, and it's not on our list, which is a crime against humanity probably, I should put it there. Uh, is his album Liverpool 8. Ringo uh, mm-hmm. released that in 2008. Yeah. And it is a fabulous album. Um, it's kind of a retrospective on his career. Uh, and it's very wonderfully scored. And the thing that I love about it is he is the the lead writer on every track on the album. So it's one of those things where you see what he went on to do. It's It's really cool. Uh, worth listening to uh, mainly for the title track. It's a real banger. Um, but anyhow, that's awesome. I need to check it out. I'm always looking for some, uh, some new music and especially from one of the uh, Beatles. Uh, one of the things I wanted to, to point out about this album is that I really love some of the softer tunes. Mm-hmm. You know, this album has a reputation as being one of the greatest rock records. Uh, but there's some really gorgeous folk tunes. We already kind of talked about Blackbird. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Martha, my dear, Megan and I were driving around uh, earlier this week listening to this album while we were running whatever. And Paul McCartney just has a way with like soft, sentimental tunes. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's made his whole career off that whole thing, but just the melodies and his falsetto. Um, he just really shines in that kind of stuff. 
Well, what's interesting to me, I kind of wonder how much these guys, how much of their music sensibilities rub off on each other. Uh, because Julia is a tune that I really like. And I was certain, I was almost certain like, oh, that's got to be a, you know, Lennon singing it, but it's got to be a McCartney tune. No, it's a John Lennon tune. And it's this like sad, melodic sort of thing. Do you know the backstory for Julia? No, I don't. So written and composed by John Lennon, and it's a tribute to his mother, Julia Lennon, who was killed in a car wreck in uh, 1958. Wow. And so, and it was the last track to be recorded. um, And it's Lennon by himself. So yeah, it's a it's, solo tune. Uh, he did all the instruments. He did everything on it. And it is probably my favorite soft tune on the entire track. It is so, so beautiful. Good. Yeah. I, it, this album, for all its, its flaws and some of the stuff that maybe kind of makes you scratch your head, it's a pretty engaging double album. Like you said, the tracks aren't very long, some of them. Uh, this was one of the experiences I had uh, in this podcast project of ours where I didn't really hesitate to listen to the album mm-hmm. more than once in even the same day mm-hmm. uh, or, you know, just week to week or what have you. Um, it was really a lot of fun listening to it. That that diversity of tracks, you know, even though, like I said, it kind of felt like a double-edged sword at times. I think it's more often a strength than a failing that you kind of get this crazy cornucopia of songs and authors and that kind of thing is it's really pretty incredible that it's as engaging as it is. I think it's amazing. We've spent almost an hour talking about this album at this point and have only in passing mentioned that Hey Jude is on it. Um, oh, well, they, they recorded that while they were doing these sessions, right? Yes. That's incredible. Um, uh, how did they not, why did they not put that on this album exactly. is my question. How did you decide like, uh, you know, wild honey pie. Yeah. That's going to make the cut, but Hey Jude now, nah, uh, we'll save that for the next one. Speaking of songs that made the cut that, um, people didn't like at the time. Uh, one of, uh, one of the most interesting tracks on this album to me is, uh, Rocky raccoon. Oh, Um, yes. And it was taped in a single session. They sat down and they did it in one session, you know, one afternoon, Mm -hmm. and then bounced it down, and it was only put on the album because they felt like they needed filler for a double album. Oh, that's so funny. Uh, And it's like the fifth most played track on this album. It's, you know what? (laughs) What's hilarious about uh, Rocky Raccoon, uh, or hilarious that you're bringing it up, we covered that in the lab band I was in mm-hmm. in college because uh, we were all three of us Beatles fans. And uh, Eric, the uh, friend of mine who played bass, was like, oh, we should do Rocky Raccoon. That's a good one. And uh, we covered it. It's a fun song. It's what it's one of those things. It's well, we'll talk about it a little bit later. Don't talk too much about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't I don't want to spoil anything. <laughs> and since you said we have been uh jawing about this album for an hour, do you want to move on to some of the critical reception since we've sort of stood and delivered? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I did want to talk for a second about how this album performed. Um the album, the original pressing was actually serialized, which is something 
I don't think is done very often, even back at this time, where they released each album had a serial number on it. Um, in 2015, I want to say, oh no, sorry, 2008, serial number five, which uh, was owned by somebody at Abbey Road, sold for 20,000 pounds on eBay. But serial number 00000001 was Ringo Starr's personal copy, and it sold for a world record amount of $790,000 at auction in 2015. Wow. Um, but this album is a mega hit. Um, I made a comment last week uh, in the outro for last week's episode that I thought it was the uh, top-selling album of all time. I was wrong about that. I will own up to it. But it is the fourth best-selling double album of all time, with more than 30 million copies sold worldwide since its release. Uh, that's a lot of albums sold. <laughs> yeah, it, it, is, it is literally a lot of albums sold when you take into account that it's four vinyls in, <laughs> in two sleeves or however they it's package a, a that. A lot of dead dinosaurs, guys. Really is. But it was worth it. Their sacrifice is not in vain. All right, Chris. Well, let's talk about critical reception. All right, Chris. So this album has the joy of being continually reviewed since its release and had a ton of retrospective reviews on it. Uh, I've pulled a few from the web, a couple I want to read, a couple that I want you to read, but let's just say... You look at the professional rating scores, all music gives this thing a perfect score at five stars, AV plus, the AV club gave it an A plus rating, Daily Telegraph, five stars, um, Pitchfork gave it a 10 out of 10, Rolling Stone Album Guide gave it five stars. I mean, there is nobody, uh, the, the meanest reviewer that I could find was actually the Pop Matters uh, review and uh, that was a nine out of ten, and it was written in the eighties. So there you have it. Um, yeah, uh, Robert Criscow, uh, as always, has something hilarious to say about it. In a nineteen seventy one column, he wrote uh, that this was their most consistent and probably their worst, and referred to its songs as a pastiche of musical exercises. I don't, I don't know if I agree with him about it being a pastiche of musical exercises. None of these songs, I think, stoop down into the level of just being an exercise. Um, but I, one, one of the know. tracks is definitely an exercise in psychosis, but we'll talk about that in a minute. <laughs> um, but, you know, even all that said, he ranked this album as his 10th best album of 1968. Uh, so, I mean, pretty fair standing. It, it doesn't say how many albums were there. If it's mm -hmm. 10, mm -hmm. 10th place out of 10, then it's not, <laughs> you know, it's not great. Um, I wanted but to I'm sure that. I did want to point out that Tony Palmer wrote that uh, if there is still any doubt that Lennon and McCartney are the greatest songwriters since Schubert, the album should surely see the last vestiges of cultural snobbery and bourgeoisie prejudice swept away in a deluge of joyful music making. That's a mouthful that I wanted to try and say, and I totally botched it. So there you go. <laughs> I'm not cutting it uh, out. 
No, no, we we don't edit this podcast except for when we do. Uh, well, I shouldn't say we don't. I don't edit it. You certainly. How much time have you spent in the editing bay with this one? Uh, no, no minutes have I spent in the editing bay. But yeah, it's you know, it's no surprise that this has garnered so much uh, praise and also kind of backhanded compliments from people because it is. You know, I, I could see this being a little bit inaccessible if you've listened to a bunch of the Beatles um, number one singles or just some of their more accessible stuff. This album does go to a lot of different places and is longer than the average album. Yeah. I think that's a pretty good wrap-up of the uh, secular reviews that came out contemporary to the album. Why don't we dive into our reviews of this album? So wait, you said secular reviews. So are our reviews holy? Oh, is totally. That, yeah, are, no, okay. I, I I hold us so to a higher standard. Ooh, oh man, <laughs> I wish I'd known that before we started. I would have paid more attention and worked a little harder. <laughs> um. Well, do you want to go first? Or do you want me to? Sure, I'll go first. Um. So. To remind our users and listeners and fans and dear friends of the show, uh, we use a one to six guitar string review uh, pattern. Uh, one string is, you know, something just not worth listening to. And six strings is, you know, the greatest album you've ever heard, no matter what uh, mood you're in. For me, this week was very interesting. Um, the White Album, I think, was probably the first true Beatles album I ever listened to. And that's probably looking at things backwards from how I should have, uh, as a younger guy. Um, I don't have early memories of this album. I, I was definitely in high school when I heard it the first time. Uh, and I distinctly remember listening to it for those of you who were into technology on an Archos AV 500, which was a 128 gigabyte hard drive that had a touch screen on it and predated the Android operating system, but was a direct competitor to the Apple iPod. Uh, It was a piece of junk, but it had DVR functionality on it where you could plug it in with the RCA cables and record TV to it, which was kind of cool. Um, But anyhow, I remember getting this album on that device and staring at the just white screen because it displayed the album art while it was playing. And I remember this album being one of those just kind of, oh, this is really cool. This is what the Beatles are. And as I've grown older and experienced more of their discography, it kind of stands out apart from the rest of their albums. Uh, This is the one album I feel like that's kind of like the one of these things doesn't belong album because it lacks that unity and uniformness of all the rest of their albums, you know, the albums before had just a strong guiding hand and a strong uniform voice. This album came out and it was kind of all over the place. And then the next three or four albums, however many they had, uh, kind of returned to that strong uniform voice, but that was more because only one of the Beatles or two of them were speaking into that particular album and the rest were following along, which is kind of like the death knell of any sort of relationship when you've got somebody who's just tired of fighting and going through the motions and getting things done so that the next album can be theirs or whatever. Um, I don't know, man. I, 
I've struggled with this album this week. I really feel like there's four different albums in here and really only two of them are good. <laughs> and the rest <laughs> of it's just like, mm, just cut it all. And we, we could have had 12 or 13 tracks here and had just a really great time. Instead, we got 12 or 13 really great tracks. And, you know, the rest of them are things that remind you of what it looks like when things aren't okay at home. Um, yep. So this is an album that's on my list. It's one of my favorite albums of all time. It, it hurts to give it the review I'm going to give it. Um, but I think I'm fair at saying it's four strings at best. And I would probably give it three if some of my favorite Beatles music wasn't on this album to kind of prop it up and hold it up. Uh, how about you, Chris? What was your review? So I, I was really, you know, I've heard this album a ton of times. There was a road trip that Megan and I took once from McPherson, Kansas, uh, where we were both living and uh, I was going to school at, to down to Rusk, Texas, where her family used to live. Uh, out in the piney woods, uh, and it's a long drive, and we spent two thirds of it just listening to the Beatles. And I don't think that in casual listening, this album differentiates itself for me in any negative way. Mm -hmm. uh, and looking at it, kind of examining the tracks, I, I did kind of see the chinks in the armor. Uh, the scratches and the dings, uh, but still it just kind of feels like a towering achievement to me. I, I don't get tired of listening to this album. Maybe there are tracks that I skip, uh, but I could say that about any, any lesser band, you know, um, it's, it's just a fact that not every track is going to be perfect. And for my money, part of what makes this album so good are just, the heavier rock oriented tunes. Mm -hmm. And when you say that there are maybe four albums in this one album and only two of them are good, I agree. I think that if they had winnowed it down to the nine or 10, nine or 10 heavier tracks and the nine or 10 lighter folk oriented tunes, they could have had two really good albums right there and mm -hmm. just been done. Um, but, you know, we got what we got. And I think, you know, I was thinking today, well, you know, could you edit this down? You know, I was trying to do what I did with Stadium Arcadium mm -hmm. and thinking, like, could I pare this down? And it's just like, it's sacrilege to try and think <laughs> of, like, how could I chop this up? What could I have done? Uh, you know, uh, like I've said, I, I think that Ringo and George got short shrift and that kind of makes this album suffer. Uh, I think that the band is better together. Like I said, I, I really enjoy revolver and, um, and rubber soul, uh, even Sergeant peppers. You know, I, I think a lot of the stuff where they are together is just better, mm -hmm. uh, but I still love so much of this album. I have to give it five out of six strings. I don't think it's perfect. Uh, I definitely wouldn't say it's perfect. And I, I wouldn't even say that, um, I wouldn't even say that it is beyond reproach or above reproach, but man, is it good. It's got so much to commend itself. So I have to give it five out of six strings for my own personal experience. Hey, that's great, man. So with that out of the way, tell me what was your favorite track on this album? 
So my favorite track is actually, it's like a third track to the end, I'm pretty sure, is Cry Baby Cry. And it's actually, it is the track that uh, Jeff Emmerich walked out of during, you know, he had put up with the whatever two tracks they had recorded before. Uh, I remember reading somewhere that George Martin had tried to tell Paul to redo a vocal performance and Paul gave him some lip or something and was like, well, why don't you just come down and sing it if I didn't do it so correctly? Uh, uh, so it's funny that this song was his breaking point, but I just love the like kind of wry sardonic Beatles energy in this song. Um, it's got a really nice, uh, I, I like the songs where they kind of mix up the instrumentation where it's not just guitar, bass, and drums. There's some piano. Um, it's not really a synth, but whatever it is that George Martin plays on this song, I really like. And the like kind of crazy bluesy licks that George Harrison plays, I really enjoy. And also it's a John tune. I don't typically gravitate towards all of his tunes, but he writes some really good ones on this record. Yeah, and so uh, it's definitely my favorite. It's got that kind of, um, kind of like John is angry attitude about the whole thing. So <laughs> that's fine. What about yours? What was your favorite track? We've already talked about it a little bit, but it was because I couldn't not mention it during the main body. And that's uh, Rocky Raccoon, uh, which uh, it's just the track that when I'm sitting there with nothing on my mind and just something pops into my mind, the, the chorus for it just always pops into my mind. It's uh, a great hook. Oh man. It's a great hook. Even the way they mispronounce the word raccoon, uh, raccoon, uh, gets uh -huh. stuck in your head and you just keep saying his name over and over again. And it was funny when the randomizer or the Oracle gave us this album last week, uh, the first thing I thought of was that's the album with Rocky raccoon on it. Uh, before I'd even, you know, it's been a couple of years since I've listened to this. Um, I feel like it's the closest we will ever get. I mean, it is definitely the closest we will ever get to the Beatles doing a country song. Um, mm -hmm. the, the Eagles gave us Desperado and the Beatles gave us Rocky raccoon. And we could have had something really cool if they had really leaned into that on some subsequent album. Uh, yeah, and tried, yeah. tried, um, very, very great vocal melodies and just a great, it's a good song all the way around. So I will keep gushing on it if we keep going. So what was your least favorite? <laughs> well, my, uh, my least favorite tune would probably come as a surprise to nobody who's been paying attention to this episode. And that is piggies. Um, and I don't want to dump on George cause I think George was well-intentioned uh but man i just find that this this melody just grates on me uh and and oddly enough the song really feels like something pink floyd would have written uh just because they did go on to make the album animals mm -hmm. which was sort of based on the same thing you know it's it's not hard to draw a comparison uh, you know, if you have those kind of leanings, it's not hard to draw a comparison between uh, the rich and pigs. Uh, but it, it is a little on the nose, and the music is kind of dislikable to me. I don't usually have a problem with um, uh, what the 
the keyboard instrument that they're playing harpsichord. There we go. I don't really have much of a problem with harpsichord, but something about this song is just super saccharine and sugary and obnoxious. Um, I do like that this song gave me the image of John Lennon chasing pigs around a farm, <laughs> trying to get a good audio recording. So I guess I can't really be that mad at it, uh, but I won't go on too long about that. It's just not a song that I like. Um, so what about you? What is your favorite or your least favorite track on this album? My least favorite track on this album is, and always has been revolution nine, which basically just sounds like a bad acid trip. And uh, it features uh-huh. just outtakes of uh, Lennon and Harrison and Yoko Ono and George Martin talking and just all sorts of weird song samples and music samples. It's not a song at all. It's also the longest track on this album. It's eight minutes and 15 seconds long and it's insufferable. Like it's terrible. It's pretty obnoxious. It's not even a song, but it's a track on here. I'm calling it a bad track. It's the worst. Yeah. I, um, I, I listened to this whole song once or every once in a while, once in a blue moon, like when we, when I listened to the song for the first time with the intention of doing it for this podcast, mm-hmm. I did my due diligence and then I just skip it. Cause it's, it's, is there anything here? Nope. Nothing here. Uh, no, Next. <laughs> you know, it's, it, it's good. <laughs> what value it has is as an academic exercise because they had been listening to the electronic music experimentation of Carl Heinz Stockhausen. And they were like, Hey, we could do that. And they did it. And none of us liked it. And so I think that's, you know, somebody had to do it. It might as well have been the Beatles, but it's not like I'm going to listen to it. And I think it, it makes, it makes Beatles fans pretty angry. I don't get angry. I just kind of like shake my head and move on. But uh, I, what I was reading for the research of this, like people were really mad that it was even on the album, which I think is hilarious. So a uh, funny story uh, coming home from Alton Brown, you know, you've got that rush of people who were trying to leave. And so Tiffany and I are sitting in our car waiting for the parking garage to kind of clear out a little bit. And this album or this song came on while we were sitting there waiting and it just goes on and on for forever. And Tiffany looks over at me and goes, this is on a Beatles album. I was uh-huh. like, yep. And she goes, well, this sucks. And she skipped it. <laughs> so. From the people who brought you yesterday, it is eight minutes of noise. <laughs> and not Incredible. even pleasant noises. That's no. the thing. No, it, um, it, it's not like birds chirping or anything. It's just like heck, crowd noise. Eight and minutes clips of John of Lennon's pigs would have been funny. Like, just, yeah. just put that on. Let's, let's yeah. do it. Give me that. But then we get that later in uh the pink floyd album animals and it's better anyway so there you go forget it oh uh our new segment in a word mm-hmm. what is your word for this album i'm supposed to keep these short but i have to give some backstory i originally was going to pick messy as my word uh just because mm-hmm. it's a mess but while driving from san antonio to st louis i listened to this album front to back three times Ooh, and putting in the work. (laughs) Yeah. Well, 
one thing about the album is it's 90 something minutes long. And so by the time it gets back to the start, you don't even realize it's the start anymore. You're so mm-hmm. into it or whatever, uh, which is yeah. a benefit to it. But my kind of wrap up word for this album is going to be disappointing. Uh, and it goes back to this should have been one or two albums that would have been excellent on their own. Instead, I had to wade through a bunch of crap to get to the, the <laughs> stuff that was good. And so it's yeah. disappointing from that front for me. How about you? Uh, what was your word? Uh, so my word for this album is stamina, not from the point of view of the album in isolation. Uh, but it it's miraculous to me almost that this band was still capable of writing fresh and exciting music after hitting the highs of their career. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're a band that had previously just kind of gone from strength to strength. Uh, and the fact that they could come away from Sergeant Peppers and still have something in the can to give is incredible to me. Um, and, you know, it's it kind of reminded me a little bit of the Fleetwood Mac album Rumors, where mm-hmm. things are just coming apart at the seams, and they're still able to put together one of the most impressive works of music. So I had to, uh, stamina was my word, that they could just, like the Energizer Bunny, keep going and keep going. Um, I think that's a great word, honestly. I read somewhere um, this evening that... In between the years 63 and 67, so that four-year period that eventually led up to them disappearing for a year and then coming back and doing this album, in the years 63 to 67, they performed more than 1,400 live shows, and that was mm. internationally. That was their U.S. tour, their, their tours all over Asia. I mean, just crazy amounts of travel involved, and that took a ton of stamina, and Sure, these guys are in their early 20s when they're doing this, but it would have killed me in, in my early oh, 20s. Like, because not only me? were they being entertainers during that time and the, the Beatlemania thing and every teenager in the world just falling over themselves for them, they were creating amazing music on top of that mm-hmm. while enduring all of that. Yeah. Um, so, and, and even if you think about before the Beatles proper, you know, when they had, um, their other drummer, whose name I can't remember, sorry, guy, um, they were still going out to like Germany and the Netherlands and stuff and going out there and touring. So they had really been in the trenches since they were very young. And so when you think about the fact that they had been doing that before even their Beatles career proper uh, took off. Um, Pete Best, by the way. Yeah. Pete Best. Thank you. Um, it's amazing that they didn't quit sooner and just go into the retreat into the studio sooner. Very true, man. Well, let's go see what the Oracle has foretold for next week's episode. All right, let's do it. All right. So we're picking from your list, which is down to less than 30 albums. Which means I definitely shouldn't add anything to it. I haven't added anything for months and months, and I don't think I have anything else to add to it. There you go. All right, so the Oracle brought back number 23. Let's see, the band is at the drive-in, and the album is Relationship of Command from the year 2000. All right, we're going to get heavy. Not uh, not emotionally heavy, not sad, but um, 
loud and and heavy. This is some post hardcore stuff. So um everybody get your your skinny jeans and your converse on. It's going to be quite a ride. And I will be typing my show notes out on a typewriter. Um <laughs> No, very cool, man. Folks, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. If you have been enjoying our show, please rate and review it on your podcatcher of choice. Uh, We will definitely read and review uh, your reviews uh, on our show, which, by the way, we did get some interesting feedback this week from a friend of mine from high school who randomly found our show through some posting that you must have done. And uh, they were very complimentary. So uh, to the friend who asked not to be named, thank you. Hey, got some some response. That's yeah. good to hear. Oh, uh, another um, bit of audience engagement we got is that Jackson Emmer actually listened to the first half of uh, our episode and said he couldn't keep listening because his poor heart couldn't take all the compliments that we were dishing up that episode. Uh, but he was very appreciative. Thank you, uh, sir. We are appreciative of his appreciation. Absolutely. It's just a, a circle of love here. Very uh, Beatlesy, very 60s. <laughs> oh, that's awesome, man. Well, close us out. Let's go home. Yeah. Uh, so if you guys would like to get in touch with us, leave us some love, shoot us some hate mail. Uh, either one is fine with us because it breaks up the monotony of life. You can shoot us an email at two dudes and tunes at gmail.com that's two dudes and tunes at gmail.com all spelled out no ampersands no nothing and don't forget to hit us up on instagram or facebook i did get the uh facebook situation figured out uh they had moved it from um like a personal page of mine into just the pages section of uh my facebook app not sure why don't really care because i can still access it um let us know what you thought of the white album and don't forget to tune in next Wednesday where we run with one armed scissors. You guys take care.